one of the major apprehensions about anyone going to coroner's court is if there are questions about the quality of care that that person received. And you touched on it already. It would be very unlikely for someone to turn up at coroner's court uh, and not have forewarning that were questions around quality of care. No, coroner's courts are not built on surprise. The coroner actually would be extremely upset if surprises came about in court and something came up that hadn't been raised before. What we do is we do open disclosure in coroner's court so all information is shared with all parties. So if the family have concerns, they've been shared with us. Our statements have been shared with the family prior to us getting to court so that everyone knows what people are going to say, what it is. The coroner's court is not about apportioning blame. It's about the facts and getting the answers to the questions. Who died, where they died, when they died, and in what circumstance. It's the what circumstance we're helping with. And it's not set out to trap anyone. If there have been shortfalls in care, and if that is accepted that the shortfalls in care, we make sure that staff are prepared to go into court and acknowledge that. And in a lot of cases in Sunderland where there have been shortfalls, what we've been able to do is by writing a statement in advance, preparing that statement that sets out what reflection has been and what learning has been, the actual person who's made the mistake is not the one that goes to court. Often the coroner will then just take the investigator of the incident or will take a higher level member of staff, for instance, the medical director or deputy medical director, to talk about policy or procedure changes. Once it's already been identified that it's been a mistake and it's been admitted as a mistake, that's not an issue that then needs to be rehashed in court. That is already a matter of evidence. So there's nothing to be gained from going over those questions. So it is really important if a mistake has been made that it's acknowledged and reflected in the statement and it shows in the statement what reflection has been and learning from it. That's what the coroner's looking for. I guess the nightmare scenario is you turn up to coroner's court and the family would bring with them a legal representative. Obviously, the coroner would try and protect any sort of instances of portioning blame and attacks. I guess people would worry that that was just uh, leading up to a civil or a criminal, in the worst case scenario, trial how they would go about protecting themselves in those circumstances would they have access to uh, legal representatives or legal advice in the build-up to those inquests absolutely when that is needed when i very first started with inquests almost 15 years ago it was only solicitors that went to court with staff we've moved away from that now and we only put a solicitor in court if we absolutely need to families don't get legal aid for inquests so if they're going to be represented by a solicitor, the chances are that the only reason that a solicitor is there is because there's potential for a claim. Now, if a solicitor is going to be attending court with a family, the coroner will be advised of that. He'll let us know immediately. We can then make a decision as to whether we need to take a solicitor or whether the member staff needs other representation. Part of my job is to make sure that the members of staff are appropriately represented right from the start. And if I thought there was any chance of conflict, if there was any chance of their registration being at risk or them being criticised to a point where there may be GMC involvement or investigation, I would advise them about getting individual representation and contacting their defence agencies. We would never stop anyone taking advice from a defence agency at any stage in an inquest. What we would do is, if we felt it was necessary, we would always advise them to do so.
So it's a two-pronged thing. You pay for your medical defence. If you want to use it, you can. But we will tell you at the point where it is needed. If you've chosen to go before that, that's absolutely fine. But there are very few cases where we do feel that it's needed. But we would always let you know and make sure that you've got that advice. Equally, if when we're preparing for an inquest, when we're talking to staff, if they don't feel that they're getting appropriate support through the process, we would always offer them the chance of legal representation then. And we also have a free legal helpline, which is totally confidential, which we would give to staff. And they could ring that to check that the advice that we're given is correct and that they're actually getting appropriate support. Do you think sort of implementation of things like the duty of candor has had an effect on the number of families going to coroner's court with lawyers looking for claims? Are these things that are now brought to the fore before an inquest happens? It tends to be, from my experience, the duty of candor and the changes in the legal process and complaints process means that most solicitors are now getting involved at the complaint stage. It is the complaint stage where they're getting involved. Um, we often find at inquest, by the time we get to inquest, the solicitors will have had a look at the family's complaint response and they will advise the family that they're not going to get a claim, that there isn't grounds there, therefore they're not going to be able to afford a solicitor to go to court. So it has actually helped us in some ways with reducing the number of solicitors involved in inquest, but they are still there, they're involved in other processes and they're getting their information through other routes. And do you think the families feel getting uh, traditionally maybe apologies later on in the in the day, so to speak, at inquest rather than straight off off the bat. Do you think that has sort of helped with um, the relationship between uh, trust generally and families? I think an apology at the very outset is absolutely crucial. And when you're waiting for an inquest and you're waiting sometimes six months, sometimes up to a year, depending on the complexities involved, to wait that long to then get the apology, it's too late relationships are damaged by that point. We had a very difficult case last year where there was a family, a young person's death, necrotizing fasciitis, they'd come into the trust and we hadn't recognized it and it was three days later before the patient deteriorated significantly and died very quickly. There were multiple missed opportunities and what we did with Duty of Candor was I had a letter written by the chief executive within days and when it was convenient for the family, I went out and met the family and handed them the letter of apology and the initial explanation. We didn't get the court till eight months later, but it made that court process much, much easier. It was easier for everybody involved because the family knew up front we weren't going to challenge that. We were going in there with a hands-up approach if we made mistakes. And that meant an awful lot to them that they didn't actually have to fight to get that. So duty of candor, when it's done correctly, works beautifully. However, duty of candor can work against us if it's not done properly. If the wrong person goes in or if they go in unprepared and they give unrealistic expectations or because they're distressed or upset themselves, they give the indication that something was wrong or there was a mistake made and then the investigation actually highlights that there wasn't. The family then believes there's been a cover-up. They then start to fight and it becomes a very detailed battle going forward and very complex to try to get that confidence back from the family that we're telling the truth. It then becomes much more complicated than it needs to be. So if you're going into duty of candor conversations, again, stay factual. Make sure of the facts that you're going to share. Make sure they're correct. 
And if you're going to tell them it's going to be an investigation, make sure you know what the investigation process is so you're not giving unrealistic expectations. We had a family that were told they would get a complete investigation done within 28 days, and it took nearly two years before it was concluded. Wow. Quite rightly, that family spent those two years colluding with every agency possible to give them a different answer than the real one. It wasn't the case. It was around the provision of oxygen in COPD, and even the experts in all of the expert fields couldn't agree. That's why it took us so long. But the family had been told 28 days, and they held on to that 28 days. They should have had an answer then. So it's really important in duty of candour that if you give promises, that they are ones that you can keep. Just wanted to touch on the role of the medical examiner and how you felt this might influence your line of work. Usually in Sunderland, we're one of the very first people to put things in motion and run with. With medical examiners, we're actually one of the last. And we've deliberately waited because it wasn't clear what the areas would be. It wasn't clear what the rules would be, how to set it up, or how it was going to be funded. The process where we very first started with the decision to put a medical examiner in was around being totally independent. We're not sure how the families are going to view the medical examiner role with it being somebody that's actually employed by the hospital. In the areas that have put medical examiners in place, we've looked at the pilot studies, and it's been very helpful in weeding out the natural causes inquest, the cases that really don't need to go to coroner's court, and that can be stopped. What has happened in other areas is there's been, and I believe Sheffield quote a figure of around 13% rise in the number of inquests going through, actual inquest hearings being needed. Things were just being flushed out that hadn't been referred to the coroner. They were being found that maybe would have been closed off as a frailty of old age or maybe just closed off as a, with a death certificate issue without that discussion with the coroner where it would be picked up that there was something to look at. So we are anticipating that the actual court work might increase, but that doesn't mean more people will go to court. It means that we'll have to get better with the statements and writing the statements to prevent that. The medical examiner will take out a lot of the angst of the cases where it is complaint issues and where we've done everything appropriately, but there is a perception that we haven't. In your line of work, you've, your role is dealing with complaints, and as we've sort of touched on already, most complaints begin or are made worse by issues in communication. Are there any other general themes that you've seen more recently created by modernising medical methods of delivering care or technology or things like that? Yeah, one of the, the key things that we found is the introduction of electronic records. Now, the introduction of electronic records is a bit of a two-edged sword. It gives me beautiful records that are not handwritten that I can read, and it's timed and date stamped, so we've got that audit trail. But what is happening since we've got the electronic records is documentation is getting less and less. People are putting less information into the documentation than they did, and they often don't put the rationale for the decisions in there. It, you are relying on people's memories as to why they made that decision, why they did what they did. What we often don't see within the documentation is when we've decided not to do something. So if, for instance, a patient's come through our AD department having had a fall, often our AD staff will allude to the fact that we're going to admit the patient and they're probably going to need a CT scan. They then get onto the ward through further assessment. They don't meet the criteria um, the nice criteria for CT scans, we don't scan the head, but then later the patient suddenly deteriorates, or heaven forbid they have a, another fall on the ward, and they then deteriorate. 
the families always go back to that first, why didn't you do the CT? If you'd done the CT scan earlier, you said you were going to do it, it was a mistake that you didn't. Don't have that rationale documented that, right, okay, this patient's come in, they don't fit nice criteria, therefore we're not going to CT scan. It's not natural for us as medical staff to write why we don't do things. Helpful if we do occasionally, if it isn't a big decision like that. We also, in the documentation, don't write down the things that we do as every day. So we're starting to miss out on some of the basic things that we do around the examinations because we always examine that area in a patient with this. So it then comes back to what I was talking about earlier with the, well, it's always my usual practice to do that. And is this a function of people just being uh, busier, of electronic records being, although easier to access from distant sites, a bit more cumbersome to wait for a computer to load? And I think it's a, it's a bit of both. I think when you've got the notes in front of you, the paper record in front of you, it's very easy to just put, pick up a pen and scribble a few notes there. Whereas you've got, when you've got to actually log onto a computer and pull that information up, it's harder. Sometimes people wait and do their records later. The thought process isn't always there about every key stage of it, whereas you would be if you stood in front of the patient at the time. We've had this competition now for our computers um, with the pharmacy, with the electronic prescriptions, lots sure. of different people all wanting them at the same time. So you can't always get to them and get that access. But a lot of our new staff coming through do have really good keyboard skills, but some of our staff don't, and it does take time to key in and to put comprehensive record together. And I think that is starting to show now as well. So the documentation is a one for us. Communication still is an issue. We can't spend enough time communicating with families really. But what we're finding now is we have a lot of documentation about communication and we can have some excellent documents about what was said. But when you talk to the family, their interpretation of it's very different. So the key message that I always give to staff when I'm talking to them, particularly when we see them at induction and just joining us, is when you're communicating something, even though you know what it is you've said, check their understanding. Ask them a couple of questions that you know that they've understood exactly what you meant them to understand and that have not interpreted it differently. Some of the sad ones that we've had around somebody dying when they've gone in to break bad news and they've said, I'm sorry, we've, we've lost your dad. You know, people think that they're missing. Can we go and help look for them? Have you reported them to the police? They don't want to accept that somebody is dying. They don't want to accept that you're telling them bad news. So their brain will look for any other way of interpreting it. So what we say to staff is always check their understanding. Make sure that you're not just giving them that information and they're processing it in a different way. More and more, we're finding at inquest that the care was appropriate that's absolutely fabulous standards of care, but the communication is what's let it down. And if the family had only known what was going on, what the thought processes were, they would have had so much more confidence in what was happening and then wouldn't be raising concerns later because they will have understood. So I guess in terms of the advice you've given for statements, for inquests, for complaints, it all boils down to the kind of same things, um, as you mentioned, communicating, be that in simple language or written simple yeah. language, avoiding abbreviations, keeping everything factual, so stating only things you know, saying when you don't know, offering to come back and explain, and then checking understanding. And I think with that kind of framework, a lot of the stress and anxiety around these processes, which are when people think there's a cover-up or something more sophisticated at play, can kind of be avoided. 
Absolutely. Well, the key thing is about if you're not sure about writing a statement, if you're not sure what information to give or what needs to go in anything, get help. There is lots of support out there and advice, and there are lots of people within the trusts that are experienced in writing statements that will look at them for you and will read through it and will give you a second pair of eyes. The coroner is not there to trick you. They're there to support you because they need your evidence. You're there helping them get that information. Be honest, be open, and be professional, and that's all that's needed.